Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Genesis. We are in the uh, tail end of chapter 47 here. This evening, we are going to really hit Jacob blessing Joseph and his sons in chapter 48. So what we have before us is a wrapping up of chapter 47 and a real exploration again of chapter 48. Which brings me to this point. It looks like, it looks like, right now, by the end of our time next week together on the book of Genesis, we will be wrapping up our, what, 85, 86 program, episode, podcast, call it what you will, study on the book of Genesis. So with that, what I wanted to throw out to you this evening is a question. What are some of the things that have really stood out to you in this study on the book of Genesis. Now, I have more or less asked you that question before, but I want to hear from you one last time. From time to time, I have taken some of your responses on air to talk about, and I would love to hear from you wherever you might be listening to this podcast. If you are listening to this podcast in uh, Chile, in Nigeria, in the Ukraine, uh, y'all have email. I would love to hear from you. Now, <laughs> with that, if you have your Bibles out and if you want to and if you want to turn to chapter 47 again we are going to wrap up chapter 47. Remember what we were talking about yesterday and a point I made about the last days of Jacob because it's going to be very relevant to our much larger discussion today as I think we are going to get into the significance of the 12. We ended on verse 27. Chapter 47 verse 27. And verse 27 reads, "Thus Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied exceedingly. Well, you read this verse and you think to yourself, Joe, no big deal, but actually <laughs> there is a big deal. It's the first time in sacred scripture where the name given to Jacob becomes the national name borne by the covenant family descended from him. Okay, so the first time that Israel isn't talking about Jacob, but the nation descended from him appears in, in verse 27 here. And I think this to be fascinating because, as we will also see in chapter 48, there's a lot of biblical history that we might be familiar with, but we don't know where it all started. Well, I think chapter 47, verse 27, is a case in point where we see the origin of a biblical history that we might not be familiar with. And certainly we're going to see more of that in chapter 48. But again, just to close out chapter 47, verse 28, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal loyally and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. He answered, 
I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. A bed can also be translated as staff, interestingly enough. So what is this language of hand under my thigh? Well, recall what we touched upon back in chapter 24. The loins of thighs represented the locus of procreative powers, if you will. So in antiquity, putting the hand under the thigh was an oath gesture signifying that the wearing party invokes a curse of sterility upon himself should he fail to uphold his pledge. I mean, this was a matter of really life and death, okay? All right, so let us now transition into chapter 48 and the blessing of Joseph and his two sons. Just by way of quick snapshot, what we have here in this chapter is the blind and bedridden Joseph adopting his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Again, here's some important history, right? We know about Manasseh and Ephraim. Well, here we are talking about Jacob blessing Manasseh and Ephraim. And what we see here in this chapter is that they are being raised to equal standing with the sons of Jacob and made really founding fathers of the two of the Israelite tribes. So just as Joseph was favored over Reuben, so we will see uh, Ephraim in this chapter favored over Manasseh. All right, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at loose in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Massa shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, let us pause here for a second. Why are Reuben and Simon mentioned here? Recall that Reuben and Simon uh, were the first two sons born to Jacob, right? Both were disqualified from receiving the blessing of the firstborn because of their bad behavior. Reuben uh, defiled his father's bed, and Simeon, of course, because of his violent mood. So essentially, Manasseh and Ephraim take their uncle's places in honor of Jacob's family. That's what's going on here in chapter 48. All right, verse 6. And the offspring born to you after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. For when I came from Padan, Rachel to my sorrow died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is, of course, Bethlehem. What's the significance of Bethlehem, my friends? Well, you know that, right? That is of course, where our Lord was born. And don't think for a second <laughs> that has not fallen short of any biblical scholar. Incidentally, my friends, what does the word Bethlehem mean? Bethlehem in Hebrew, house of bread. House of bread. So the one who said, you must eat of me and drink my flesh to have eternal life in John 6, was born in a place called the house of bread. Most fascinating. All right. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? 
Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. Don't you love that, Joseph? Whom God has given me here. So Joseph is claiming his sons as his own? No. No, he was but an instrument to bring his sons into the world. These sons belong to God. He has a role as their father to bring them up in the light of who God is, just as you and I do, my friends. But as Joseph, we should be reminded, they are God's. If you have children, our children belong to God. I think from time to time, we need to be reminded of that. All right, we continue. And he said, bring them to me, I pray you, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. What does that evoke? (laughs) Does that not evoke? (laughs) What happened between him and Esau and his father Isaac? He could no longer see. Here you have a father who's basically blind, giving a firstborn blessing. This is all intentional, my friends, all intentional. All right, so Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand upon the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has led me all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and in them let my name be perpetuated in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel pronounced blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. With my sword and with my bow. Okay, the first thing I want to tackle is something that I haven't talked about before, and it occurs to me right now that I really should. And that's the significance of the number 12, because here we have more discussion on the significance of the number 12. Earlier, I was talking about the word Israel no longer just being a name tied to Jacob, but now this great nation. And of course, 
uh, this great nation is broken up into what but the 12 tribes of Israel. So, <laughs> what is the significance of the 12? Well, you'll find the number 12 187 times in the Bible. The number 12 is very important to God as it represents, my friends, in most cases, the number of perfection and authority. As it relates to this number of just not perfection, but we could also say completeness and authority, really we have to look no further than, than the 12 tribes of Israel and what we have been talking about over the last, gosh, 10 chapters or so, right? What did we read in Genesis chapter 35, verse 10, when God appeared to Jacob? He said to him, Your name will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. And as we just read in chapter 47, verse 27, again, I reinforce that name is no longer tied to just Jacob, but now a great name as it becomes a great nation under the banner of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's very important. Now, if you were to fast forward into the Old Testament, we have numerous references to the number 12, and I think something can be gained by looking at some of these. We have 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. We have 12 historical books in the Bible. We have uh, 12 loaves of permanent offerings on the golden table in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5. 12 explorers or spies were sent into the land of Canaan. Of course, 12 judges. Solomon had, had 12 administrators in his kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 7. There were 12 men who had 12 stones to lay in building a monument to the Lord in Joshua chapter 4, verse 3. 12 curses were indicated for disobedience to Israel. A young Israelite male took how many years before he could be admitted as a son of the law? 12. So on and so forth in the Old Testament do we see time and time and time again, the significance of the number 12. And here we should turn, turn to the church fathers, those first Christian thinkers, those first Christian theologians, if you will, who taught that the numbers found in the Holy Scriptures were full of mystical meaning, which could be interpreted for deeper significance, especially as it applies to Christ and the New Testament and how Christ and what Christ perfects, fulfills, and at once transforms. And then, in turn, what that means for you and I. What do I mean? Well, maybe we should take a, a look at the book of Revelation. Because the number 12, as I think many of you know, is everywhere in the book of Revelation. I think you get it 21 or 22 times. The New Jerusalem, which descends out of heaven, has how many gates but 12? Manned by how many angels? The twelve. Each of the gates named after one of the twelve tribes of Israel. In Revelation chapter 7, 12,000 from each of the twelve tribes of Israel will be saved near the end of the present world system. The walls in the New Jerusalem are measured at what? But 144 cubits high, which of course you and I both know is 12 times 12. The new city is also 12,000 furlongs squared, Revelation chapter 21, verse 16. We read of 12 precious stones that will be used as the foundation of the new Jerusalem. The wall of the city had 12 foundations with the names of the 12 tribes. No, no, the 12 apostles. 
And I think this is when you begin to get into what the, what the first Christian thinkers were thinking about. You see, my friends, that last reference is quite rich. There is a reason why Jesus not only chose 12 disciples, but also after Judas betrayed Jesus, that he was also uh, replaced, that Peter saw the need for him to be replaced with Matthias in Acts chapter 1, verses 23 to 26. What was all of the Old Testament prophecy about? After that spat between Jeroboam and Rehoboam that split the 12 tribes of Israel, you have the emergence of the prophets. Huh? You have the emergence of the prophets. And what are they talking about? But the reunification of the 12 and the rebuilding of this great covenant. But you and I both know, my friends, that if the Old Testament was about a national covenant, the New Testament was going to transcend that in Christ. And how does he do that? But by making an international covenant with man. Oh, by the way, the word Catholic, coming from the Greek katoholike, means universal, international, cosmic. Okay? So when Jesus Christ picks his 12, and transforms the old covenant into the new in his own blood, what he wants us to see is that, yes, he came to fulfill all of those great prophecies that talked about the reunification of the 12. It wasn't a coincidence that when Jesus saw the Samaritan woman, of course, the Samaritan woman being symbolic of the disunity of the 12, right? Because after the break between Rehoboam and Jeroboam in the Old Testament, Jeroboam went up into uh, Samaria where they worshipped those five false gods on Mount Gerizim, right? The woman was from Samaria. She was symbolic of the fractured family of God. What does Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? I have come that you might worship in spirit and truth, that there might be a new unity in my blood. And so he chooses 12 as symbolic, yes, as complete, yes, and as he does, a sign, a direct sign that he has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament ache for God to fulfill his promise. Amen? Amen. So important. We should never overlook any of that. And as I was reflecting into these verses as Jacob was blessing Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, it's time we, we talk about the Twelve. And so we do. All right, now, by way of spiritual reflection into these verses, we could say that, you know, life for Jacob looked considerably different from the perspective of the grave. <laughs> now, having been able to trace the hand of God in his life, right, he can... Now see that life was not one long sequence of sorrows, but a chain, in fact, of events and the sovereign plan of God to accomplish His purpose? No, God's purpose. Sorrow and suffering were seen to be friends, not foes, as Jacob had once concluded. Right? Previously, Jacob sought peace and prosperity as his highest goal. And could we not say, my friends, that when these are our exclusive goals, then acquiescence is preferable to adversity. You see, Jacob had preferred to do nothing when his daughter was forcibly taken rather than run the risk of losing his comfort 
losing his security. Brothers and sisters, men will never be noted for their character when pleasure is the highest priority over and above such things as purity and humility and the virtue of truthfulness. So from the grave, Jacob has come to realize that it was his suffering and, and trials which were the instruments of God to draw him to the point of submission to the will of God. My friends, God did not select Jacob because he had more potential than Esau. Jacob's accomplishments in of themselves had all been for naught. He never enjoyed the fruits of his manipulation in getting the birthright from Esau or the blessing from Isaac. He never owned the sheep of his father. He left the land of Canaan penniless. His prosperity came from his sojourn in, in Padan Aram, right? Not from his own wheeling and dealing, but because of God and the promise of God. What's the point here? Well, you've heard me say it before. Only when Jacob was powerless and forced to leave the land of promise did he cast himself fully upon the goodness of God and not rest in his own devices. This is what we see with the prophet Elijah. This is what we see in the figure and person of Job. When we are left with those spiritual pangs of hunger out from our desolation, do we no longer keep God at bay but invite him into our life? My dear friends, our lives, I think, would, <laughs> would be much happier if we come to the conclusions Jacob did, but hopefully you and I a whole lot sooner rather than later. If we can, maybe like Joseph, see the hand of God in our suffering, then we can rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that God is at work maturing us and, and teaching us endurance. This is, is cause for great joy, is it not? To know that we are being prepared for something so beautiful, so extraordinary. And if we can see that God has not chosen us because of our potential, but rather to demonstrate his power, we will not engage in the fruitless efforts like that of Jacob. Remember, my friends, that God does not call the qualified, but qualifies the call. We were just talking about the 12 apostles. We really need to look no further than the 12 apostles. You are talking about the bottom of the bucket, right? There was a reason why God selected these motley crew of men. And maybe I suppose you can make a case that one among the 12 was worthy, was qualified, right? And who was that? Judas. And we know what happened. This is about opening ourselves up to God. What do we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 17, verses 26 to 29? For consider your calling, however, brethren, that there were not many according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. I love those verses. And I think those verses 
highlight our point, huh? Isn't it interesting that God chose Jacob to be Israel, the patriarch? Joseph, who by far is the most pious of the group, arguably the most pious in all the Old Testament, is passed over and that no tribe is actually named after him. Has that ever dawned on you? (laughs) He is not the forefather of Messiah, but rather Judah. Yeah, Judah who had failed with his sons and who was intending to have an illicit relationship with a Canaanite prostitute. Neither was Joseph to be the one through whom the priesthood would be named. No, that was Levi, the brother who had deceived the men of Shechem and slaughtered the men of that city. Brothers and sisters, for God may take material as unlikely and unpromising as you and I and do great and wonderful things through us. May our view of life be that of Jacob in his dying moments, the view from the grave not attached to fruitless endeavors. Recall that the word vanity literally translates as emptiness or nothingness. I bring this up because a lot of us think about this word in relationship to, oh, maybe one's excessive attention to one's physical appearance. But you see, the danger of vanity is not necessarily in the superficial trappings, but rather in the fact that our obsessions lead to a significant what but waste of time. Vanity literally translates really as a waste of time. For this reason, St. Paul warns in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, to be wise, making the most of the time God has given to us, because the days are evil. Act not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. Hmm. St. Paul reminds us that making good use of our time can only take place if we walk in the way of wisdom, right? Jacob understood it, but from his grave. And we are grateful for that, because all the while, he had much to share with us from his grave. And we will talk about that next week in chapter 49. (laughs) Let us close with one more passage from Paul. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Amen. Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.